Our sermon this afternoon is presented by Mr. Matthew Steele, and its title is, And That's How I Saved the World. Hello. I appreciate how Ron said that, because that kind of reads rather badly, doesn't it? Um, I didn't do that, in case there was any doubt. That is just the title of my message today. In fact, I emailed Brian. I said, could you put presented by so there's no confusion? I'm pretty sure he was thinking there's no confusion. My message today, though, was inspired by uh, a T-shirt. Sermon inspired by a T-shirt. Well, what's what's that all about? I mean, we see T-shirts all over the place, don't we? And they have all kinds of images, and they're supporting different companies or causes or ideas, uh, ideologies, religion, so on. Uh, T-shirts are used as a means of being a personal banner for something using our our chest as an advertising space for either something we believe in or a a company that's advertising their products. But I saw this t-shirt and I thought, that is powerful. And it was an unusual image because you don't normally see um, this presentation of what was essentially is a collection of superheroes on this t-shirt. Because in our world, right, in our culture, if not in every culture of the world throughout history, there has always been this desire for heroes, for a savior, for someone to come in and save the day. There is something in the human psyche that somehow knows that we are in need of a savior, that we need to be saved. We don't always know from what we need to be saved. Sometimes from ourselves. Sometimes from natural disasters. Other times from this pure evil, as we talked about in the past, that just seems to flow over this earth uncontrollably. And we still, today, in this world, after all the lessons of history that we should have learned, we still see things like ISIS. ISIL, and the tremendous wickedness and evil that man can do to man. And we've, we've talked about this before. In spite of our Herculean efforts to stomp this out, to get rid of this evil, right, it still persists. And that's an interesting word too, right? Herculean efforts. Where did that come from? From a hero, from Greek mythology, from Hercules. The, the, the son of Zeus, right? The mythical god of the gods kind of thing. And it's interesting that the Greeks had this as part of their culture. They had superheroes, just as we do today. Hercules and Achilles and Odysseus and Perseus. All kinds of heroes. And then the Romans come along and what do they do? Oh, I like these heroes. Their names are a little tacky. We're going to change them. We're going to change into Jupiter and Mars, Venus, Mercury. Same heroes, same fictitious characters, same interactions in the life of the culture, same story. 
that we need a savior. It's there, the essence of that ethos, the mythological need to have a savior. And our Western culture, also influenced by these hero figures, has even gone so far as to persist with the names of the planets. We've named planets after these great heroes, these great champions that we've dreamed up. Today, we have new versions of these ancient demigods. We call them superheroes, like Batman, Spider-Man. Anybody a fan of Captain America? The perpetual Boy Scout, can't do no wrong. Iron Man, with all of his tech. The Flash, and perhaps the most powerful of all Superman, or most powerful of all Superman, right? All of these characters have their respective story. And they seem to endure tremendous hardships. They overcome insurmountable objects, triumphing over the weakness of, of their humanity, even though some of them are maybe aliens. But they triumph over the weakness that is innate in them somehow. And they show us a better way of living, a better way of being, a more noble way of being. And of course, some of these superheroes in the, the comic book storylines have even died trying to save mankind. And then, of course, have been resurrected, probably mostly to sell more comic books. Can't kill off your main characters, can you? Not for very long. But still, this idea of a, a sacrificing messiah, savior, superhero figure persists in our society. Themes that are very familiar to us as Christians. And so that brings me back to this t-shirt that I was speaking about. This t-shirt. On this t-shirt is a depiction of many familiar superheroes of our culture. And in the center, in the center of this great collection of heroes, of characters, is a man robed in white. You might not be able to read it there, but we, we join this scene at the end of a conversation. Each one of these powerful figures are leaning in, listening to the man in the center listening in to what he is saying. And as these great heroes listen intently, we join the end of the conversation when he concludes the story with, and that is how I say the world. Not you guys. The man in the center. Jesus. Our superhero. And this image really resonated with me. It's a powerful image, especially for you know, those of us that love comic book stories and, and that mythological narrative. It's fun, as long as we remember who the real heroes are. And I'm especially partial to Superman, because, of course, we're both men of steel. Please don't test it out with any bullets. <laughs> but that's not the real reason why this, this resonated with me and that it got my attention. Because I think 
it paints a very sharp contrast. A very sharp contrast between the fictitious and the real. The characters of the human imagination and the real savior that we barely imagined, that we barely understood as a culture, as a people. Sadly, we are living in a world that recognizes all of those other characters, all of those other superheroes ahead of Jesus Christ. Does that describe us also? Does that describe us in some way? Do we know Jesus like we should? Do we recognize some of the things, the characteristics that make him our hero? Yeah, yeah, we do. Of course we do. We wouldn't be here. But on a daily basis, moment by moment, challenge by challenge as we walk through life, do we remember that he is our superhero? Are the superhero characters of myth and silver screen or books more understood or more real, more familiar to us than the actual savior of the world? And secondly, have we taken the real Jesus that we see in the scriptures, the real Jesus that describes himself, describes what he is really about. Have we taken that image and tried to remold him, rebrand him, right? Or is what they're continually doing with the Superman characters, reboot him into an image of our own likeness, into a superhero of our own preference of our own imagination. Come with me as we try to break away now from the bonds of our imagination and see Jesus for who he really is. I would like to start with another group of people who were very blind to who Jesus was. They were looking for the Messiah and they had built an image of the Messiah and when Jesus was in front of them, they did not recognize who he was. Even though he was standing right under their noses, right there in front of them. In the book of Matthew, chapter 22, we read of a particular day when the Pharisees decided they were going to deal with Jesus once and for all in the public sphere. They were going to debate him, destroy his arguments in front of the people, Embarrass him, bring him down, and then this little political, whatever they thought was going on with this man Jesus, this, this upstart would just disappear like all the other false prophets that had come and gone before. So they were going to publicly, publicly debate him, challenge him, trap him in his own words. Between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they questioned Jesus three times. First on government. And the power of Rome. Trying to get him into some legal trouble there. Second, on the kingdom of God and how people will relate to one another. Essentially, what we would maybe call social justice. And thirdly, on the law of God itself. And which is the greatest of the commandments. Remember? That he, they asked him, which is the greatest of the commandments? And in each instance, Jesus' answers were masterful. Answering their questions while also highlighting their ignorance of the truth, of God's word. 
and their ignorance of who they were talking to. Then in verse 41, Jesus turns the tables. He goes to the very heart of the matter, the heart of their problem and the reason that they had decided to attack Jesus in the first place, the reason that they did not recognize him for who he was. Because what all of their interaction boils down to this is this single question. Is Jesus the promised superhero of the scriptures? Is he the Messiah or another false prophet trying to take for himself a following and, and steal their political power, which I'm sure they had plenty to deal with and come across. This was a region that was in tremendous tumult, filled with all kinds of rebellion and revolt against Rome and using religion in one form or another was probably a commonplace to try and inspire those to, to rebel. So he asks them this question in Matthew 22, verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? Well, that's an easy question, isn't it? Not. That's a huge question. Well, what do you mean about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, ah, son of David. We got that one. He said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Uh, um, um, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he a son? No one answers. No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare to question him anymore. Done. All they could do was kill him. That's all they could do. They couldn't destroy his arguments. They couldn't take away his word. He was the word. They didn't see what was in front of them. No one could answer. Wait a second. These were the most educated men of their time. These were the leaders of the temple. These were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were part of the priesthood and the ruling class. Why did they not know the answer to that question? Jesus expected them to know the answer. He expected them to know the answer. These were the men who studied the law and the scriptures. The men of all the people in Judah and Jerusalem that should have been able to recognize the Messiah. And yet, they in fact did not know who he was. They didn't know what the scriptures meant. They could not answer why David called his son Lord. Why? Why is this? Because this goes to the very heart of who the hero of the entire plan of God is. Where he comes from. And where he's going. And they could not answer what David seemingly knew already. Because they had fashioned a savior of their own imagination. They had decided the savior, the Messiah, is going to come 
this way, in this format, in this likeness, he's going to do these things. They decided for themselves. They had taken the parts of the hero narrative from the scriptures, the parts they like, and put it together. And they'd come up with a savior that was going to return to Jerusalem. He was going to overthrow the Romans. He was going to establish the kingdom again in Judah and Israel and restore that which was lost. Restore it all the way back to David. That great kingdom. That's what they decided. They decided that that's what the Messiah was going to look like. That's what he was going to do. This is what they wanted out of their Messiah. So much so they completely missed it. They rejected Jesus as their superhero. This is, we must recognize this, something we are prone to do. That we are prone to do this same thing. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. In many ways, it's built into our human nature. We can see that through our culture, through our mythology, and all the images of the hero figure like I talked about before. We want a savior to come and fix it all for us right now. It's interesting that in asking this question, Jesus used a passage from Psalm 110. And of course, he always used the word when he was giving an answer. He always used the word when he was instructed. He was the word. And if there were any discerning minds amongst them, I wonder if anybody listened to what he said and then later went back to the synagogue or to the temple and took out the book and started to read and study. Well, why did he quote that particular passage? Because it would have given them a massive clue as to who he was, who he really was. They would have been able to uncover part of the secret identity of the superhero. You know that every superhero, right, has the secret identity. Just simply removing, oh, better not do that. <clears throat> Ooh, that was bad. Disguised by a simple pair of glasses. It's the same person with the glasses. But there's a secret identity, isn't there, too? to that superhero character. Through this scripture, they could have started to peel back that disguise that really wasn't all that disguise and see elements of their savior. In Psalm 110 and verse one says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. What in the world is going on here? 
was a lot. And those last three verses there, well, that sounds like our superhero, right? Coming back. What do they say? Cracking heads and taking names. He's revenging against the wickedness that's been done on the earth. He's cutting off the rulers of the nations that have oppressed the people, that have corrupted the people. Yeah, that's the hero we want. Excellent. When do we start? But then we see something else. Alongside this conquering hero, this superhero, the son of David, is a priest, but a special kind of priest. Not one of the line of Levi, not one from the house of Aaron, but a priest of an order that predates Levi, and Judah, and Jacob, and Isaac, and predates Abraham himself. An eternal priest. His name is Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. Emphasizing this. Take notice of this. There is something going to happen, and he is not going to change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is a clue. A clue that we can use to peel back some of the disguise of our superhero and see an, a facet of who he is and what he is doing. See, the true nature of our Savior that we've all longed to see. So following this clue, we might be able to uncover the secret identity of our hero. Who was this Melchizedek? We find him in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18. We join the story as Abram comes back from victory in battle, freeing his nephew Lot and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and with all their possessions and their people. And as it says in verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the, most, of the God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham, the God of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And he, Abram, gave him a tithe of all. Several interesting points here. And you, you've probably studied some of these before. Firstly, we're many generations before Moses. And yet, for some reason, in spite of being a long way off from Sinai and the giving of the law, Abraham knew of tithing. Isn't that interesting? But the law of tithing the understanding of tithing goes all the way back there at the very start of Israel, the very start of the story of Israel from Abraham. Abraham tithed. But more striking than that is that we see this Melchizedek, a king of Salem, which means king of peace, right? Salem means peace, king of peace that he was a priest of God the Most High. How did he get to be the priest, the priest of God Most High? What is that all about? Where did this guy come from? 
at how, how did he know God? How did he know God? How did he become this priest? And how did Abraham know him? This guy just comes out and says, hey, I'm the priest of the Most High. Oh, okay, here's 10% of everything I just got. That doesn't sound likely. Did Abraham know who this individual was? Did Abraham already know that he was a priest of the Most High? And therefore gave him this tithe. This Melchizedek must have been a very special person. A very special person because he was not just a priest of God at the time that predates the Levitical priesthood. But his order and the power and the importance of his priesthood is of sufficient rank, sufficiently important, and have sufficient prestige, right? That Jesus would be called that our superhero would have this rank of this order of Melchizedek. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, he also could swear by no one greater. He swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For man indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus, God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay a hold of the hope set before us. Now, it's a critical point for us to remember as we explore this. Not just in regards to God's promises to Abraham, but to us personally. To each one of us personally. We have to hold on to something firm. This faith, this life that we've chosen, is not easy. We need to hold on to something that's firm solid, and moodable. Otherwise, doubts creep in. Our faith is weakened. And we can hold on to this, these two pillars, that it is impossible for God to lie. If he could lie, if he did lie, what are we to make of that? How could we possibly trust him? He will not lie. You know, Superman claims that he cannot lie, right? God's claim is higher and real. God cannot lie. And the other tenet, that other pillar that we can trust, this too, is that there is none higher than himself, so he swears by himself as the supreme authority that he will do something for us. And for us, trying to reveal the secret identity of our hero, we also have to recognize something else. The verse says here that these two immutable things are proof together that he has sworn together that he will not relent. Remember? 
will not relent. This is not going to get changed. He has sworn by himself. And it is important for us to realize this in regards to who this Melchizedek was. Is Melchizedek greater than God? We just heard that God said, I, I swore by myself, there is none greater than me. There is none greater than God. Of course not. Yahweh has sworn that his son, David's son, through his physical birth, is subject to the order of this Melchizedek. So God is subject to Melchizedek. Thought there was none greater. The writer of Hebrews continues. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews is making it plain. Jesus is of this order. He is subject to this order. How can that be? How can God be subject to something? Isn't this order subject to him? God swore by his own name that he would make his son an eternal priest of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, here's the answer, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being first translated king of righteousness. He is king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. This man had a lot to live up to, if he was a man. How could any man live up to this? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that means this man could not have been a man. Not as we know it. And then he says this. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest. But who are we talking about? Who is Melchizedek? Jesus is just taking up a title that already belonged to him. It was already his from the ancient time. He has been on this earth for a long time. He has interacted as a superhero that has come from a far distant planet and worked with man. Right? And that's one of the enduring elements of some of the, the, the mythologi mythological characters, not only of our modern time, but ancient time. That these great beings interact with mankind. I wonder where they got it from. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest. We have just read that one of the two pillars in which our faith is based is the fact 
God cannot lie. And that he said through Jesus, that he said that he would make Jesus this eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that there is none greater than he. And that Jesus is Melchizedek. And then he said this through Jesus. One of the probably the, the most well-known passages, right? John 3.16. We can quote that. Nearly everybody should be able to quote that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I really think this is where the myth of Superman gets his power. And maybe you've never thought of that. Maybe you're not into the Man of Steel like I am. But there's some really interesting lines in some of the movies. In the Superman narrative, there's a, there's a, a scene where Superman is flying above the earth. And then the voice of his father is coming, like coming from memory, right? And he remembers, and he hears his father's voice talking about us at first. He says, they can be a great people, Kal-El, if they wish to be, or they wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. For this reason above all, their capacity for good, I have sent them you, my only son. Where do they get that from? There's only one narrative that I know. And it's almost as though they've just lifted it out of these pages, out of John 3.16, his only begotten son. Imagery taken right out of the Bible. Maybe it was accidental. But in many ways, this idea of this Savior just permeates all of our cultures throughout history. So it's no surprise that this would come to the front. There is no hiding. But Jesus had no beginning of days and no end of life, save when he set aside his eternal glory and died as that superhero to save us. When he emptied himself of his eternal power. He had no father and mother until he allowed himself to be placed into the mortal body, the same body that we have. There is only one superhero, and his name is Jesus. In verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light, huh, the light to show them the way, right, has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. You know, we think we love light, you know, we hear our politicians talking about transparency. Yeah, transparent as a brick wall. Our culture, well, let, let's just bring everything out in the open. Well, that's working well. That's not the light that God is talking about. And that's interesting too, isn't it? We want the Savior to bring the light of our own choosing. Don't shine the light 
in these areas or deal with those people over there. They're, they're the bad ones. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they are being done in God. And this is the real work of the Savior, isn't it? Not some idealized superhero figure of our own imagination. Jesus came to save, came to bring us the light, came to shine the light into it. Have we accepted that light? Do we accept that Jesus is shining the light in us? That's not an easy thing. The light has a way of bringing out the dirt. It has a way of bringing out the things that we would rather not see. That underlines the flaws in our character. Underlines the weaknesses in our flesh. It's a hard thing to do that. It's a hard thing to accept this light, but we have. We love the truth, and we've accepted the light. And we allow, hopefully, and we'll continue to allow God to shine that light in our hearts. But this revealing is for a purpose. It's not just to point out how bad we are. It's so that he can clean us out. So that he can replace our sin with righteousness. So that he can clean us up from all the works, all the evils that we've done. But oftentimes, this is the limit of our understanding of Jesus, our superhero, or at least our acceptance of him as our superhero. Even as Christians, we can stop right here. That's good. We accept that Jesus is our Savior, that he is our Messiah, that he wants to clean us, make us right, that he wants to heal our brokenness, hard thing, but we accept it. We love him for it. And then, we turn around and ask the same question that all the disciples asked. After everything that had happened in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. Remember, they had seen Jesus become the Lamb of God. They had seen him crucified. They had seen him died and buried and then resurrected again to eternal life, they really fully understood he was that promised Messiah. And many other witnesses, they recognized that. They accepted that. And then they turned around and asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The same look for the Messiah. The same format of the Messiah. We want you to come back, kick out those evil Romans, and set up the kingdom. Surely you're going to do it now. Right? They missed it. They missed it. They wanted him to create this new world to live in peace and safety. And, you know, whether it's the Romans, or ISIS, or Congress, whoever we want him to get rid of, 
right? And bring about a restoration and a new kingdom, a new country. It's understandable, but we missed the point. We missed the point. Because the answer, according to the priest of the Most High, according to that ancient line of priests, the priest of priests of the line of Melchizedek, he says what? He said unto them, it's not for you to know the times or the season. What? It's not for us to know the time and the seasons. Well, we have a lot of biblical prophecy that, you know, we like to explore and piece together and figure out. He said you can't know the day and the hour, but he didn't say the year, right? So we can figure out the year. Jesus right here, he's saying something that seems at odds a little bit with, with our tradition. He said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Okay. So we can know some things, but there are some things that is in his authority for him to know alone, and we shouldn't ask that question. It's not for us to know. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and on all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That's his answer. Are you going to come and be the rescuing Messiah, that Savior that we've been looking for, that hero that will save us? No. At least not yet. Jesus, again, he breaks the mold. He breaks the mold of what we want the Savior to be of what we want him to look like. Come fix things. Come do it for us. He is a savior. He is our savior. But he is about doing a lot more than just coming and fixing things. For sure, he will come again. He promised he will come again. And we look for that, and there's nothing wrong with us looking for that. But there's more that he is doing. He will establish himself as the king of Salem, the king of righteousness, but not yet. There is something else he is doing and has to do first. And we just read it right here. Don't worry. Don't worry about the time and the season. Don't worry about the timing of things. You can't make that happen. You know, we look around the world and we, we don't like what we see. And we don't like the sin and the hurt that causes this tremendous pain in people's lives. We don't like to see that. And we want him to come fix it. The trouble is, he's given us something else to do. And if we, if we focus on trying to figure out when is Jesus going to return, and trying to ans ask the question and answer the question that isn't in our purview, we forget to do the other thing. And what did Jesus say? The spirit of power is going to come on you, and you are going to be witnesses of me in all the earth. This is where the true superhero departs from the idol of our own imagination. We want a superman to come and save the day, to dispatch the enemies to chase the evil from this world, 
to bring in an age of eternal peace. The real work of the Superman at this time, the real work of Jesus, our Savior, is much bigger. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, John introduces a new perspective, a new concept to us. And we, we've accepted this now, and we, we talk about it. This is not new. But in his opening salutation to the churches of God in Asia, he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This term, kings and priests, it pertains to the saints. It pertains to us. And it's also repeated in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And they sung a new song saying, you're worthy to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. It gets even more emphatic. These are, just, these are not just honorary titles. These mean something. And then in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign as kings with him a thousand years. Three times we're referred to as kings and priests. Three times. Let me ask you a question. What are we kings of? What are we kings of? What's our royal line? Some of us might have royal blood. I don't for sure. Maybe some of us can trace our ancestry, but is that what he's talking about? Because after all, these saints, these Christians, these that follow Christ and have followed Christ throughout the ages, it says that they are from every tribe and every tongue, every nation. So, what's our royal line? What is our royal line? What makes us a king in the kingdom of God? Where is our royal heritage? Well, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What was the throne of Jesus? Well, he was the son of David. Yeah, but... Before that. Before that. An older throne. The king's. 
Salem. Right? The king of Salem. The king of peace. That was his throne. The one that he sat on when he met Abraham in imagery and type. The throne of Melchizedek, the throne of righteousness. That is his throne. So another question. If we're going to be priests, then what are we priests of? What order are we priests of? Because are any of us Levites? Any Levites in the room? Well, probably not. We're certainly even less likely to be of the sons of Aaron, aren't we? So, what's our priesthood? Well, our priesthood is older than any of that. The order, the only order that predates the Levitical priesthood is the order of Melchizedek. And if we are kings and priests of our Savior, of our superhero, then surely we are of his throne. We are of his kingdom. We are of his order. He has made his kings and priests forever. In this order, according to his righteousness, making Jesus again the king of righteousness in us. He is the king of righteousness now in our hearts. Don't get me wrong. He is the priest. He is the king. And will always be. And we will always be subject to him. And what a blessing that will be to be subject to him for all eternity. But unlike the superheroes of our imagination, unlike the comic book heroes that really don't exist, the real Savior doesn't just come and save us from our troubles. He actually turns us into superheroes as well as he is performing his work. In him, all of that strength all of that power. Remember, he said he would give us the spirit of power. What kind of power? In some ways, I feel like we, have, we forget the power of the Holy Spirit. We've lost some understanding and some knowledge about the power of God's spirit. He's turning us all into superheroes as well. And I see that see that in different ways and in ways that the world wouldn't recognize, just as Curtis was, was closing his message earlier, in ways that looked like foolishness to the world. Well, how is that a superhero power? In the life that endures physical hardship and brings the joy of Christ Jesus with them every day. In the life that takes care of the handicapped, takes care of the sick and the infirm that takes care of the, the troubled young people, that spends their life teaching our children, that cares for one another in our family, in our church, with grace, with humility, with endurance, with the same kind of persistence that God used when he said he would not relent. Right? That's one of the superpowers that we can gain from him we let Christ Jesus work in us, we can endure. We can be witnesses of the immeasurable power of God's grace and lives restored. Examples of his grace.
working in us. Each one of us are being made into heroes. We may not be able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Sorry, Ron. Don't try it. You'll hurt your knees. But it is our duty to be witnesses. Witnesses by what we say. And as Curtis said earlier, by what we do. And we better do what we say, right? Otherwise, we'll bring the name of Christ Jesus into disrepute. It's our duty to be witnesses. It might seem too big for us at times. But remember the two pillars of our faith. It is impossible for our God to lie, and he has sworn by himself, as the writer of Hebrews says in, in chapter 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Grace is a help. We often think of grace as, as forgiveness, as God's mercy towards us, and it is, but it is also a help in time of need because he's gracious to us. He gives us that spirit of power. All we need to do is to be his witnesses by what we say, by what we do in this life. The rest is up to our hero, our savior, he will take care of everything else in his own time. As I was writing this message, I was struck by some of the recurring themes that keep coming back to me in my, in my meditation and, and in my messages. And some of these things just seem to be coming to the forefront. And I pray about every message that I, as all of us do, pray about what, what God wants me to say. And I wonder if there's something that we need to hear in all of this. Or maybe there's just something I need to hear in all of this. But some of these themes keep repeating. Is God trying to prepare us for something? Is he trying to get us ready for the next thing that happens? We already see the darkness. We see the darkness in the world, and it is getting darker. We need to be that light, and we need to be prepared. We need to be witnesses not only of our Savior and what he is doing in us, but also witnesses of what the world is doing so that we perhaps can give evidence and give proof when we get to the kingdom of God. I don't know when all of these things are going to come to pass. I don't know when our Savior is going to return and set things right. I wish he would soon. Try not to ask that question too much. But I do know that he is our hero. And that he will set things right. And that the whole creation groans, waiting for that day. And I do know this. That Jesus Christ and him crucified. I know that. And him raised again as king of kings and lord of lords and as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is part of his secret identity. And this is how he saved the world.